Hey guys, my name is Fane Mansa, head of the scientific community, and welcome to season two of Cap Talk, the podcast that talks to the who's who in computer biology. This season, David and I will cover various themes at the intersection of biology and technology, from hiring and team building to data strategies, from bioprocessing to Internet of Things. We're really excited to welcome a new guest and gain some new insights. You can hail the cab at revolutionaries at computerbiology.com to tell us where to take you next. And to stay up to date, you can find all our great content on computerbiology.com. Enjoy the next episode and don't forget to like and subscribe. The Cap Talk podcast is sponsored by Synthase. Synthase Life Sciences R&D Cloud enables every scientist to consistently generate the highest quality data from robust automated experiments anywhere. The no-code platform for your R&D automation initiatives. Go to synthase.com to learn more. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Cab Talk, the computer-aided biology podcast. I'm your co-host, David Kirk, and I'm here with the head of the Cab community, Fane Mensa. Hello, everyone. Good to be back. I think uh, after a month being gone, it's great to, to be back again. It is. I had to reset up all of my podcasting stuff in the five minutes before recording. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot I forgot how we normally did it. So, um, yeah, let's, let's hope we... Uh, goes well. <laughs> Finger, fingers crossed there's no issues. Yeah. And this week we are talking about scaling biotech using computer-aided biology tools with Jesse Johnson. And we'll be discussing this as well on our LinkedIn group. Just go to LinkedIn and search for the computer-aided biology community and groups. And of course, you can always keep up with the latest news through the newsletter at computeratedbiology.com. Jesse, great to have you on the show. You have an interesting background. You are the head of data science and data engineering at Dewpoint Therapeutics, uh, but you've also been a math professor. So before we get started talking about scaling biotech, tell us a bit about yourself and your journey into data science. Yeah, uh, thanks for having me. First of all, um, I'm excited about this conversation um, and to get to know more about the CAB community, which I, I just recently signed up for. Um, yeah, so I started off as a um, you know, as an academic mathematician, uh, you know, grad school, uh, postdoc, and then a tenure track position for five years at Oklahoma State University, um, studying low dimensional topology, which is um, you know pure math uh, has nothing to do, uh, or at least uh, at least when I started, didn't think it had anything to do with you know data machine learning, all that stuff, um, and then. Um, because uh, so it turns out that there's this uh, one the field that was just starting up um, around the time that I started my tenure track position, or maybe, maybe a little earlier, called um, topological data analysis, with the idea that you could use ideas from topology, which is closely related to geometry, to understand large data sets, kind of thinking of the points in these higher dimensional spaces as geometric mm -hmm. objects. So that got me, you know, thinking about um, data science and machine learning. Um, I started writing a blog called um, uh, The Shape of Data, uh, kind of about the, the interplay between these ideas. Um, and then at some point I realized that if I really wanted to pursue this, um, it was gonna be hard to do that from a pure math department, you know, in you know the middle of the country away from, from where the exciting things were happening. And so that kind of pushed me into um, doing, you know, into, into industry. So I um, moved to Google as a software engineer, learned a ton in a very short period of time about software engineering. Um, and then um, realized that I really, you know, if, if I was going to work on these hard technical problems, I, I really needed more, you know, motivation to why this, these were important problems that we were solving. Um, and so that, that uh, moved me more into life sciences, healthcare, um, which brought me to, um, uh, to Celerity, uh, where I was until um, the early August, and then now at uh, Dewpoint Therapeutics. Okay. Uh, tell me a little bit about what Dewpoint do. Uh, so Dewpoint, um, so it's studying um, condensate biology. So this is, this, this idea that hasn't 
surprising has gotten surprisingly little attention you know in the in the last hundred years of biology up until relatively recently um which is this is basically the idea that there are um phase um uh what's the word uh not phase transitions but um basically phase changes within a cell in which kind of uh, molecules will clump together into a little bubble you might call it where where reactions tend to happen more than if they were just floating around in the you know in the molecular soup and so you know so we we, we kind of tend to think of cells as you know being places where the, the molecules float around and do whatever they need to do when they happen to bump into each other but but this but so so this approach kind of looks at how how these um these condensates basically concentrate those those reactions into one place and how cells can use those to regulate reactions um often at a faster pace than they could from just you know the the gene to rna to protein cycle alone was well, so it was quite interesting jesse obviously i i read the uh, scaling biotech blog that you've written and an instance thing that after you've just introduced yourself, I'm just thinking like data background, life sciences, biotech. Um, when did you, can you take us back to when did you really see that data is such a big problem in life sciences and that you've decided to work in a field or do something about it? Right. Well, certainly I, you know, I wasn't the first one to figure that out like that. That's been known <laughs> for a while that, you know, data, I mean, you know, th this has been, uh, there's been a very, a, a large movement, you know, especially with, um, you know, genomics uh, and and all of that to, you know, as data has become a large part of life sciences. Um, and so, so for me, it was, it was kind of an easy for, for myself to, you know, kind of get into that given the interest in data and in kind of um, approaching these impactful problems. And, and especially where there's, it feels like there's a lot of low hanging fruit in the sense that if you go into any biotech organization, at least the vast majority of them, people are going to tell you it's a mess and that, you know, you know, there, there are things that aren't, um, you know, that, that could be done better, that should be done better, but for whatever reason, it's not happening. Um, and it turns out that, you know, even though that seems like low hanging fruit, like how hard is it to stop using an Excel sheet when, you know, when like it's so easy to set up a database, it turns out it actually really is hard for a lot of factors beyond the technology. And so for, for me, the realization wasn't that data is important in biotech, the realization was more that it's it's larger than a technical problem. It's really an organizational and operational problem. It's it's you know changing the way people fundamentally work and think about these things, and it's also um, a resource management pro problem in that you know we kind of we know how to solve these things, but it takes time and it takes effort, and there just isn't enough time in the day unless yeah. you know. Um, Unless half your organization is, you know, is, is software engineers, but then you have a whole other set of problems um, because, you know, getting getting that huge number of software engineers to actually work on the right problems the right way is, you know, that, that's another matter. So, so it's kind of um, so so it's basically understanding. Okay, we know we know we can't do everything the right way, but what are the most important things to do the right way? Um, and and what does the right way mean in cases where maybe people disagree about that, which also often happens. Very true. I think um, what I what really struck me um, about your scaling is, is the website scaling biotech. That's right. Scalingbiotech.com is the blog. Yeah. And then um, I also have a weekly newsletter. I'm going to plug that now since you brought it up. Yeah, uh, do. There's also a weekly newsletter that you can you can um, sign up for. Uh, there's a link on the on the landing page. But it's kind of scalingbiotech, one word, dot com. And yep. you can share that in the uh, uh, computer aided okay. biology LinkedIn community as well. Another reason to sign up to the LinkedIn group. I wanted what resonated with me about the blog. This is what I want to say, because uh, I worked in a very small company, and there was something that you said about um, how small companies—it's really just one project, and that kind of data, that connectivity is not—it's not a big deal at the small scale, because you are just you are just managing one kind of set of data across a couple of people, and that 
all of the bigger factors when it comes to scaling, they suddenly become a reality. Can you talk us through why scaling biotech really kind of caught your attention? Yeah, right. So, so I mean, it's it's kind of no surprise that as a company grows from a small, you know, half a dozen people startup to a bigger company, a lot of things change. And we often think about that in terms of the culture change, but there's there's really a lot of operational things that, that I think it's important to be very deliberate about how we approach them. So, so for example, if you're if it's a drug development startup, especially a platform type of um, biotech where where the goal is to have multiple um, drug programs running, you know, in parallel, you. It's, it's very easy to kind of fall into a pattern where each drug program is its own self-contained, you know, little thing, and the, the folks in that program are talking to each other. But ideally, you want the sum to be greater, so the whole to be greater than the sum of the parts. And so you really want to encourage that communication between the drug programs, which is really hard to do because, you know, if you're, if you're sprinting as hard as you can towards, you know, towards the IND or towards, you know, the, the next clinical trial, whatever it is, it's hard to kind of take a step back and you know, and, and communicate with the people who aren't directly working on that, but but might have some interesting ideas or might benefit from your ideas. And so, so it's so so again, this is where we get into the, this kind of operational question of how do you how do you put the structures, the the the, um, the processes, as well as the technology in place that encourages the right type of data sharing and more you know maybe less tangible sharing between those programs. Um, at the same time, you know, as as the programs get farther down the the pipeline, you have more, you have new functions coming in, you know, as you go from, you know, pure R&D into preclinical and clinical, um, and, or, or, you know, even just from biology to chemistry um, and data science. Um, and, and in general, you have, you know, more teams sprouting up, you have teams, you know, kind of subdividing. And so thinking about being deliberate about the communication and the coordination between those teams becomes much more important. On that note, Jesse, um, do you, especially when you're talking about scaling up as you as you explained from a small and you started growing do you see that data aspect being the core of a company or is it really tied to let's say the specific projects that are individually um, linked with each other or also separated because i think that that can be a massive challenge right especially when you're growing yeah absolutely and you know it's it's interesting so there we kind of think about tech companies as being the the ideal for this but but it's it's relatively easy for tech companies to do this because you know they kind of they, that's that's their bread and butter that's what they do and so for for a you know a, a more life science biology focused company you know it doesn't it doesn't necessarily make sense to reinvent the wheel and rebuild all that structure you know build build something custom to manage all that but on the other hand if they get things off the shelf those will never exactly fit what they're doing yeah. you know so so it's always you know the build versus buy thing is a huge problem as far as is it is it going to be more expensive to try and take something that someone else has built and modify it to fit or to build something from scratch so so at some point, I, I think it is worth thinking about it. Rather, so so of course the ideal is to have a you know completely integrated company in which you have a dashboard that shows you everything that's happening and lets you drill down. You know, but in but in practice, the investment isn't necessarily worth the time. And and I think it's it's important to kind of at least at least come in with a mindset that we want to find the right balance of giving people the right information for the specific things that they need to do, um, rather than trying to build this perfect ideal. You know image of, of what we kind of think of a data enabled biotech to be, um, you know, just because practically like the, the value that we get from that in practice probably isn't worth the, the investment to go all the way there. So maybe you want to go 90% of the way there, maybe you want to go 50% of the way there, but it's worth thinking about that balance. What, what are the other factors that need to be considered for this? I like the concept as well of like, do you go to a vendor or do you build something from scratch yourself? I guess it obviously depends on your needs, but uh, what what are the factors then in considering this? The the sort of considerations that that I tend to focus on are 
for each process, um, kind of looking at a single process or, or what, what I call an experiment template. And so, so the idea is that there's a lot of experiments that you'll do in, in a biotech setting that aren't explicit experiments. And so I, I define an experiment as anytime you're doing something where you don't know the outcome, in particular, when you're going to learn from, from the outcome. So if you're, you know, if you're running an assay just to see if it works, just to do QC, not not as part of, you know, a particular scientific experiment that you want to do, but as you know, part of developing it, that's that's an experiment, even though, you know, it's even though it's not kind of an explicit experiment. If you're, I say every time you run the unit tests on your software, that's I consider that an experiment because the whole point is you don't know if the software is going to pass the tests. And you know if they if they fail it, then you know you have to fix something. And if they pass, then you know you make a decision. So so again, there, there's all these experiments that across the organization. And so for each type of experiment, you're not. It's usually not kind of done on its own. You're usually doing the same type of experiment over and over again, but just changing the the parameters, right? So with it, with your unit tests and your software, you're changing the code that that it's testing, but it's running the same tests on them. If you're developing that assay, you're going to tweak. Certain things, you know, in that process, but you're, you know, you're going to run it over and over again until you, until the QC comes out, you know, close enough to what you want, and so, so, so you kind of think of these experiment templates that we're running over and over again, and then for each template, that now because you're going to be running it multiple times, it's worth kind of putting in some some time to optimize it, but the way that we optimize it, depending on the type of experiment, may be different. So there, there are three trade-offs that that you know I've that I've uh, kind of identified as I've been thinking about this, um, especially um, you know, as, been, as I've been writing the blog. It turns out um, writing regularly, uh, especially to an audience, is a great way to kind of process these ideas. So this is not when I started writing, but kind of when I, you know, after after writing for a number of things. So so the three trade offs um, are so the, the um, and I, 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 um, the order may change each time I talk about them. But so um, one is. Um, cost versus reliability. So that is, are we? Is it is it a cheap experiment and cheap in terms of time and you know kind of cognitive load as well as you know dollars or or euros or um, you know um, or, or pounds? Um, yes. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I got it. Um, uh, right, but so cheap in terms of cheap in terms of money or cheap in, cheap in terms of time and um, cognitive load. Um, if it's if it's cheap and you can run it over and over again and you don't really care if it fails, you know, then then it makes sense to you know do that, run it over and over again, and actually make it less expensive to run because the more you can run, you know, the more times you can run it, um, the the more information you get. On the other hand, there are expensive experiments where um, you know where it takes so it costs so much to run it once. That you better be 100% or at least 99% sure that you're going to get good information out of there because if it fails, if something goes wrong, um, you're you know it's going to be a huge expense. And so for those experiments, you types of experiments, you actually invest in making them more reliable. But those those things that make it more reliable tend to make it more expensive rather than cheaper, right? So maybe you put in a check where somebody has to review everything before it can run. Well, that means that now that's more cognitive load and time you know, for, for someone as well as more time and cognitive load for the person who's, you know, who's preparing for that review. So, so the things that make it more reliable, make it more yeah. expensive. This is so something actually we see in a, a lot in automation. We see a lot of um, the automating vendors, they will really play up the reliability of their devices and how it makes these experiments replicable uh, mm -hmm. every time you do it. Um, and the cost seems to be very well justified among many of them. Right. Well, so so in that case, I mean, there there's the the investment in making it in the automation, but the, but the the investment in the automation actually makes it cheaper. So 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 you're paying a lot, but, 
But and so there, so that so when I talk about the inflection point, what I mean is that things that are on one end of the spectrum tend to get pushed towards that, toward you know, in that direction. But there are cases where you can invest in something and push something over the inflection point, usually from the expensive reliable side to the cheap side. So an automation is a great example of that. You can take something that if someone's you know pipetting all of these things, you're going to be make, make sure that they do it slow enough that they can get it right. And it's it's going to be a very expensive experiment. You're only you're going to put a lot of checks in place before you do that because it's going to take however many man hours or person hours to, to do that. But if you can if you can invest in the automation and put it move it to the cheaper side, suddenly now you're going to do as many of these experiments as you can because you know you're you're because the robot's doing it, so it's cheaper. And you know you, you um, but of course robots also make mistakes, you know different mistakes than humans, but. But maybe maybe that's okay because if the robot makes a couple of mistakes, you just you know re rerun those the next time. So so it, it it that that's a great example of shifting over this inflection point, which in some cases makes sense. In other cases, um, if something is if something if it would cost too much or just be physically impossible to shift it over the inflection point, you might run into situations. And this is something that I ran into coming from a software engineering perspective, mm -hmm. um, where things are cheap, right? Where unit tests are the, are the main experiment, and that's cheap. And so, you know, um, so at Celerity, you know, we do a lot of um, uh, sequencing, or did a lot of sequencing. Um, and um, so, so you know, it, it takes however many, um, however much time to run the sequencers. And, and so I thought, okay, great. If we can speed up the analysis at the end, like we can make things a lot easier. Well, of course, it takes a sequencer a day to run. It takes some number of days or weeks to prepare the samples before that. So going from 24 hours to run the, the bioinformatics pipelines to going down to one hour, doesn't matter. It's not gonna. It's not gonna make a difference, right? The overall thing is still really expensive. So instead, mm -hmm. what we want to do is, you know, is put in those those checks to make sure that that those days leading up to that aren't wasted, yeah. right? On 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 that point, Jessica, on the cost, because I'm just thinking, like, for for a biotech company or even for a pharma company, um, yes, there are costs tied, but is it more that you would you take the higher cost to make sure that what you want you're getting it? Um, and does it then still become a, a costing argument? Because I have the feeling that sometimes you always want to look at ROI, okay, uh, right. costs versus people working on it versus getting done what you need to be done, which is getting a compound to a face or getting a drug into a, the, the next stage. Is, is right. that, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so so obviously it depends. It depends on the context. It depends on the, the sort of the experiment or the experiment template, right? And so I think thinking about it in terms of this, what, what, what you don't want to happen is to have sort of two conversations going on at, at once where one person is talking about how do we make this you know less expensive and the other person is talking about how we make this more reliable and of course yeah. they're talking past each other mm -hmm. and so i think calling out these trade-offs explicitly and thinking of them you know in in this framework can often help frame those conversations in a way that you make sure that you're you're you know on the same page because once once you once you've got that frame correct then it becomes much easier to make the decision and often you know in many cases the decision may even be obvious one, but but it wasn't obvious until you realized that you're trying to solve different problems. Got it. Yeah. What are right. the other trade-offs that we have? So we've cost versus reliability. Uh, what are the other trade-offs? So so the next one um, I like to talk about is um, immediacy versus generality, and this this especially comes up when as the organization is growing, like we were talking about earlier. Um, so so immediacy is so when when you're doing an experiment, there's usually an immediate goal that you have from doing that experiment, right? So if you think of the, you know, wet lab scientists, they often have an analysis in mind before they, you know, run their samples. Um, obviously with, you know, with writing software, you know, you've, you're thinking about passing that unit test. Um, 
so so you so you can optimize the experiment for that initial goal, but then often the data that comes out of that experiment, the you know the understanding that comes out of it, is often useful later for other things. And so 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 another way potential thing you could do is instead of saying okay we're going to do some things that that are less optimal for the immediate use, either because they create more work for someone or because the data isn't exactly the way that you need it for that immediate goal, but this is going to make someone's life easier, better. This is going to allow, say, a data scientist to take the data from multiple experiments and combine it all in the same place. And so, so that's that's generality. And so, so especially as you're expanding, you know, when you're a small organization, you can focus a lot on immediacy. As you expand, it's that you you need to kind of put those explicit, um, you know, generality goals in place, and again, kind of agree you know, with, with the person doing the experiment and the person who's, who's later likely going to be using that data, kind of what that, what that trade-off is. So, so um, uh, one, one great example is um, uh, ontologies or vocabularies, right? If you're, if you're, if you're doing an experiment, um, you know, say, say in genetics and you're tracking certain genes, there's lots of different ways of thinking about genes, whether you're thinking of different level of, of variance or different level of splicing, all of those things. And so for the immediate experiment, it makes sense to name those genes in, in, in a certain way for that, for that experiment. But then you also have these gene ontologies um, where they, they've basically taken all these different ways of potentially naming the genes and they've selected one. Hmm. And so that's probably not going to fit your, will often not fit your experiment exactly the way you want it to. But of course, someone later who's looking across multiple experiments, if every experiment has a different naming scheme for the genes, they're going to, they're, they're, I mean, they're going to be miserable, right? Or they may just may not be able to, you know, effectively not be able to do it because it's going to take so long to figure that and they, and they won't know how to, you know, how to, how to fix those differences. So if you go to the original experiment and you say, look, we're going to use this particular ontology. And yes, it's going to make, it's going to make your results a little bit harder to analyze but it's going to mean that you know a week from now we can do this much bigger analysis. You know that's again that that's that's not always the right decision, but but uh, recognizing that trade-off can often help make those decisions, especially when it comes to a conflict between the the wet lab biologist who wants to use the their naming scheme and the data scientist who wants to use the ontology. You know, so so that's one example. Yeah, I think that's a great example because yeah, I I can remember when I was doing uh, some of the sequencing work, it, it, it can become very um difficult especially when you're working with other people and and having different autogeny so yeah i think yeah makes sense especially if um because we're getting into a, an age now where data sharing is becoming much more much more of a thing it's not just you know you have your data and you send a file to somebody when they need it now everything's accessible via the cloud and we're kind of approaching this even newer era where everything is not only accessible via the cloud, but you can design and build your experiments and share your data and process your data and do everything via the cloud. Um, right. It makes a yeah. lot of sense. Yep. And of course, if you're if you're part of one of these larger organizations data sharing, then of course that becomes even more important. And this is this is where you know a lot of time and energy has has gone into, you know, particularly for these ontologies. And there's a um, philosopher whose name I'm blanking on right now, who's written a lot about this. Um, maybe we can, um, if it's okay, I'll uh, we, maybe we can add a link uh, to her book in the in the show notes. Um, yeah. But um, I'm I'm blanking on the name now. I apologize for that. So that gives us two out of your uh, three trade-offs. What's next? <laughs> so the last one is flexibility versus consistency. So and again, this this. Um, so early on in a project, you, you when you sort of don't know exactly what you're going to do, 
you, you know, you're going to make, you're going to do things a little bit differently each time. And, and so you want that flexibility to be able to make decisions on the fly and update things. Um, but as you kind of, as you get a better understanding of what you, what you want to do, you tend to narrow in. And then now the question is, so if you've done things, if you've given yourself the flexibility to do things over and over again, then of course, by definition, it's not going to be consistent. Um, so, so in particular, if you're gathering data, you know, you've got different columns, different conventions, whatever it is. Um, we, we again get to this problem, you know, so this is closely tied to generality. If some, if you want to go back later and actually, you know, use the data from all of these different experiments, you're, you're going to have a lot of trouble there. And so, so depending on where each experiment um, template is in the process, you, you're, you know, it, it, early on, you're probably going to want to have a lot of flexibility, but at some point you're going to want to put in enough consistency so that, so that you can actually use data across different experiments. And so again, important trade-off, one where there's, there's a more kind of consistent, things tend to move from flexibility to consistency. And usually, you know, organizations will start off very flexible overall, and then certain processes within the organization will kind of narrow down and become more consistent. And then of course, as you, as you add new pieces, you know, whether it's, you know, new teams or new processes, those again, will start off being very flexible narrow down. Now, what you don't want to do, um, but which of course happens, um, you know, every once in a while is you'll narrow down too quickly because someone says, okay, we need to do this the same way every time, but you don't actually know what you're doing yet. And once you've tried to make something consistent, it's very hard to kind of go back and add in that flexibility. But of course, occasionally you, you know, you need to, you're going to need to do that if it turns out you narrow down too soon. Um, so, so again, you know, thinking in terms of these trade-offs and having that explicit conversation where do we want to be along this axis, this trade-off can, can help make those decisions better. Yeah, it certainly sounds like different groups within an organization could easily silo themselves as the organization grows. So it's good to kind of have that, um, thinking about that ontology, I suppose, uh, across the organization. And yeah, it's absolutely. So, it's so easy to fall into that rabbit hole. Um, right. And the thing about siloing, and again, this gets back into organizational change, is if you recognize that that a, that a group is in a silo, it's easy to just say, okay, if we if we pointed that out to them and made them realize they were in a silo, then they would, you know, suddenly realize that they need to change and everything would be great. But often you'll go to someone, you'll say, hey, you guys are in a silo, um, you know, you need to start doing things differently. And they'll say, well, we 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 want to be in a silo, you know, we like, <laughs> we like we the can, silo. Like, we can we can move faster in the silo. Like that's, I mean, and, you know, usually they're doing it for 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 what they consider a good reason, what may be a good reason, which is, you know, they can move faster, they can focus, they can do all these things. Um, and so so often, you know, it's not just about pointing out the silos, but actually recognizing and, and you know, and, and sort of having that give and take of, okay, so yes, you want to move fast. But like, if we look at these different trade-offs, like you're, you know, you don't need to go all the way to the other end of, of the trade-off, but you at least need to move closer to the middle, um, you know, and having, so, so again, having kind of explicitly calling these things out um, can, you know, can help with that. Yeah. Can it also help with data standards as well in terms of, Fane, you were talking about this to me earlier today. Yeah, no, um, it's quite funny because I just came back from a conference and uh, I was, um, chairing a roundtable discussion and we talked about data standards and um, obviously there were big pharma were speaking to each other but then I was also thinking like they've got their specific data standards which will make it difficult for them to collaborate but also mm -hmm. when you are a smaller company you need to either adapt to their data standards or you might have your own so everyone having their own data standards um, okay. finding ways to collaborate it's almost impossible Right. Yeah. And well, and so, so one, 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 um, I think trap that, that organizations sometimes fall into is 
trying to do this in a very general sense where you know you want to do it across the whole organization but if you if you try to do it if you try to kind of boil the ocean then you you lose track of of what you're actually trying to accomplish right mm -hmm. so you know so so i think it's it's important to find that balance between saying okay we know we need data quality we need data standards like there's there's no question that we need all of those things but you know what what does what does that actually mean and you you'll often you know I've definitely been in situations where we're having very abstract conversations. What's the best way to do this? But we don't know what we're what we're trying to accomplish with it. And so, you know, so you have to you have to kind of find that balance between doing something that's general enough that that you'll actually, you know, broad enough, it'll create broad enough standards, but also be, making sure it's connected to something concrete enough that when it comes to those questions, you know, should we should we use this ontology or this vocabulary, you can say, okay, well, if we're if we're trying to accomplish, you know, these five types of tasks. You know, this this is the ontology that's going to you know be most useful across them, yeah. or or whatever it is. And of course, it's hard to do because, you know, if you if you get too trapped on okay, this is what we need to do today, you might make decisions that will block you later on. But if you spend all your time thinking about okay, where do we want to be in five years, then it's harder to make those decisions because you don't know what what you're going to need in five years. Got it. Yeah, I'm I'm gonna just uh, put my vendor synthes hat on. <laughs> On that point, Jesse, um, how influentially how influentially can a vendor be by adapting certain data standards to, let's say, their platform, allowing those people to collaborate and work together? So they don't have to think about their standards. Their standards, they just go to a specific vendor that applies the standards to those organizations, and then they collaborate. Is is that an option? Right. So it's a great question. So I think from from the perspective of of you know, of, of someone who's, you know, a customer of or potential customer of vendors. I think the the thing that I'm always looking for is the is the flexibility to to make it so that the product is is kind of one one integrated component of of our you know our platform. And so so having having both enough flexibility um that that you know that we can kind of change the things that we need to. So so I, I kind of um, think about uh, this in terms, of, or what I, what I call the the Chimera data platform, right? So Chimera is this this uh, mythical creature that was a mix of I, I forget what it is. I think it's like a hawk and a lion or something like that. But it, so it's it's all these different animals that were not designed to work together, but they they kind of come together in this whole. That's a I mean it's a mythical creature, so it's not real really living. But you know in theory it's a living creature that's able to function and, and live despite the fact that it's made up of all these different parts, right? And so my goal, as as you know, as, as from as someone who's managing this for a biotech, is to take all these different you know vendor supplied tools whenever possible, and merge them together into something that that is that's a coherent whole, right? Mm -hmm. So so if there's a lot of lock in, if the vendor says, okay, you need to do it this way, and that's the only way to do it, then it's much harder. Like if that works for our organization, that's great. If that's if that's you know even ten percent off from what our organization does, that now makes it very awkward. And much harder for me to make this a coherent whole, right? So, so like REST APIs are are like that. That's a must, right? Because because if I'm going to kind of build build the little the connectors and the components, you know, you've got to have a good REST API. Um, certainly, like with, when it comes to vocabularies and data standards, the more flexibility there, the better, right? Because I don't I don't want to have to adopt a particular data standard because that's what that's what your you know your you know, your, your tool your your off the shelf um, software uses. Yeah. And and on that note, um, I'm, I'm I really like the the trade offs, the cost, reliability, immediacy, generality, and flexibility and consistency. 
Um, is that something that you work on on the line or is it something that you've already prepared when you start engaging with a potential vendor? Because I'm really interested in how can a vendor really influence you on that decision? And is that something that they should do? Is that something that should come internally from a company? You know, that's, that's a great question. And um, I mean, I think certainly, certainly it's, I think that's, that should be an ongoing conversation, you know, so ideally you'd, you'd, have, you'd start thinking of that, about that before you start picking a product, but, but, you know, it's not like you need to sort of be locked down into that. Um, I think, right. So when it comes to, to vendors, I would say, I mean, so, so I think what you would want to do is have some range for each of those of where you think your product fits in, yeah. right? Because different solutions will push push things in one direction or the other. And if you try to build something that can work anywhere, right, like that, that's never a good thing, right? You you, you kind of, I, I think, I think you kind of want to say, okay, this is this is a good solution if you want to be at this point, you know, along the spectrum, along the trade-off, um, and you know, this is the perfect tool for for this kind of range of flexibility or you know, cost or um, uh, or immediacy versus generality, um, you know, and then and then say if for all the customers who have who have a process, you know, this particular type of process that's in that stage, you know, this is where if if they if they want to be there, this is the tool for them. And if they don't, then you know, and you know, better better having a small number of really yeah. enthusiastic users rather than trying to serve everyone and you know doing a mediocre job of all of them. And, and of course, for certain types of, of processes, there will often be more natural places, you know, where, where you want to be, right? Like um, for you know um, uh, uh, automation for you know lab instruments, which you know you guys do a lot of, right? Like there, there's sort of you would expect most customers to be in a certain place along those three spectrums yeah. uh, or the three trade-offs. Um, so so you may as well target those. Um, but then you know kind of um, I, I think use, using using those trade-offs as a way of explaining why they would want to use your product as opposed to you know someone else's or doing it themselves um, can you know can be a good way of framing that. Uh, Jesse, tell me what um, how do you communicate these uh, trade-offs then throughout a company or throughout an organization? Either from I guess your point of view, I suppose, is the data scientist is the best place to start. Yeah, I mean, so that's a great question, and and sort of for for the record, like this is something that I'm still learning a lot about, and you know, trying trying to figure out, um, and planning to to write about as you know, I kind of figure out uh, more about it. One of the things that I've been thinking a lot um, recently, and and planning to write about, um, which where I think a lot of mistakes are are made are in framing. That is, often um, I mentioned this earlier. Often it's easy to it's much easier to make a decision and agree on a decision if everyone has the same frame in mind for how they're making the decision. So, so for example, like if it's the one example of the framing is we want to reduce costs, right? Versus we want to um, you know um, reduce costs, say for for a company, versus we want to increase revenue, right? Those are different framings. And so if you have two people having a conversation where one is trying to reduce costs, one is trying to increase revenue, they're gonna come up with very different solutions and they're going to disagree about what the right solutions are. Whereas if you can take the time to make sure everyone has the same frame, ideally the frame that you, know, that you want them to, um, then, then often these decisions are much easier to make. And so I think we often, at least I know I often will come into a conversation starting kind of in the middle of it of, okay, here, here are the solutions, but I haven't defined the problem yet. And the problem is part of the framing, right? So framing, you know, so if, if you can sort of focus more on what, what's the, what's the problem that we're trying to solve, not and, and what, what type of problem it is, is it a cost optimization problem or is it a, you know, revenue generation? Problem? I mean, that, that's obviously not in, in these cases, that's not what you're doing usually because you're very far from, you know, from revenue. 
But you know, and, and this is but this is where these trade-offs come in. Of if we start by saying, are we trying to you know reduce uh, increase generality or increase immediacy, right? That helps create this common frame um, for you know for for that conversation, that discussion. So I, I've been thinking more about how um, both both being more explicit or being more deliberate about creating a frame before we go into a conversation, before I go into a conversation, um, and also about how uh, storytelling, which has gotten a lot of attention relatively recently, kind of in business, or you've storytelling in business kinds of ideas, how, how storytelling and stories and, and the kind of thinking in terms of stories can both help you define the frame that you want and how the stories that you tell, um, you know, whether they're explicit stories or more kind of abstract stories, how, how those depend on the frame that you happen to be thinking in terms of. So I like to think about this in terms of kind of the, uh, uh, the Star Wars universe, right? We all know the Star Wars movies, um, but, and, you know, and, and there's this, this huge, you know, fantasy um, sci-fi universe that, that we call all, at least anyone who's watched the movies and, and done the other things, you know, you kind of have, have some kind of understanding of, of this universe. You may know more about the history of this universe than you know about the history of your own country or the world, you know, I'm sure that that happens. But but you know so in addition to these you know to the movies there's also the animated series and you know multiple multiple animated series and there's um, you know and there's the books and the graphic novels comic books um, you know the, the 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 picture books I remember having a picture book of Return of the Jedi you know which had a very abridged version of of the movie with lots of big pictures so so there's all these different so each of those is telling a different story in a different way but about the same universe. Right. And so um, your so your universe, if you're, say, in my position where you're trying to develop, you know, this data platform for an organization, your universe is is the software and the data and the people and the you know teams and organizations. And depending on who you're talking to and and what you're trying to communicate to them, you may tell them different stories about different parts of that. Um, and again, you know, when, when you tell those stories, you want to make sure that you're framing it properly and that you're telling the right story for the frame that that you know that you care about in that conversation, and so so I think it's so so it, it's kind of thinking about what's what's my universe, what are all the pieces of it? Okay, now for this particular conversation that I'm going into, how do I how do I pick out some pieces of that and make that into a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end, or you know with the you know characters and the the conflict and then the resolution, or however however you want to you know there's lots of different frameworks for stories, um, but I think thinking about it in in that way can help. Kind of understand some some you know we all have a certain way we like to tell stories right i as as someone on the more technical side i like to dive into technical details and think about the how but often you know i've i've realized that like if i just dive into the how someone who's you know who's ha doesn't have that context doesn't have that framing they're just going to be lost and they're not going to know why i'm telling them this so so being thinking being more thoughtful about it more more deliberate i can say okay i always need to start my stories with the why and the where you know what's the context what are we trying to accomplish okay now i can get into the technical details or or maybe maybe not maybe stop there because if, if they if they agree with that that might be enough i really like that analogy i think uh that's that's a really good one too especially when you're in large organizations and um David as well as being scientists you you see when you come into the industry that you have various people with different backgrounds and you need to find a way to communicate with them perhaps speak the same language mm -hmm. um, but also trying to explain what their values are what do they find important compared to what you find important might be different but you all yeah. have the same common goal 
So um, yeah, I think that's that's a really good thing also for the listeners to uh, yeah to think about when they're communicating uh, management change or, or, or working on a right. project. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think for for organizational change, I think the storytelling could be really important for that. Both to make sure that everyone has the same story in mind for what the change is. Right, thinking about that as a story can help you kind of say, okay, do we have different stories, and therefore we're going to be working at cross purposes because you know, our, our not, not story for the past, but our story for the future is different, you know, and have like, and, and what stories can I tell to get people on board to like, tell them what the future is going to look like, or, you know, or what, what the past has looked like, you know, and there, there's sort of different levels of stories from the very detailed, like, okay, we'll come make up a, a, a fake user, Joe, and Joe has this problem, and then the solution, right, that, that's a very kind of micro story, and then there's these macro stories of, as a company, we've had these issues, and then we've you know put in these changes, and now you know now we we have these solutions, and, and you know in, in between, I think there's many many gradations, and so depending on what you're trying to accomplish, you may you may tell stories at different levels, um, which again goes back to the Star Wars universe. Do you give them the movie? Do you give them a you know two sentence summary of the movie? Do you give them a chart that shows the timeline of you know the Empire's rise and fall? Um, you know, like th there's these are all different different stories at, at different levels of you know of kind of granularity. Yeah. On on that note, um, again, sorry, it's probably the last one on the stories. I think what's really important as well that that chapters and when you're implementing a, a change, um, I think we always tend to go like, what is the perfect picture, and how right. can I land that at once? But I think it's also quite important to look at chapters and look ahead and say, okay, within three years I want to be there, within five years I want to be there, and then basically work your way around and finding, okay, what are the things after a year that we can go back to and say, okay, yes, we've achieved that. Let's set another objective for the second year. Um, and I, I feel that especially when we talk about a data challenge, we're all looking for a solution that is just there straight away. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. yeah, I think I think one of the biggest problems that, that you know, or kind of the um, uh, traps that I've fallen into and that I think is probably fairly common is wanting that immediate change mm -hmm. and do and trying to push for that immediate change and then setting expectations that are just unrealistic and you know, making doing things because you think it'll get you there in a month when you would have made different decisions if you were going to try to get there in six months. Yeah. And if you don't get there in a month and it's still going to be six months now, well, now it's going to be seven months because, you know, um, so I think, I think being realistic about that is certainly something I, you know, I've definitely, you know, I had trouble doing that, trying to do a better job of. Um, and right. And I, I think the, the, the other thing is if you don't, if you haven't been to where you're trying to get to, you, if, if you can't picture it in your head, at least I know for me, it's very hard to like know, know what it looks like. And so I think telling stories can help there, you know, especially getting into more detailed stories, you know, whether, whether it's like an explicit kind of user story, like you would have in like software development or more general stories to get, you know, to get say the biologists on board of, okay, right now you use an Excel sheet and you have these, these problems, but here's, you know, here's, here's a very explicit story of what your process is going to be, yeah. you know, as you do this with, with the fancy database and the fancy, you know, software. Speaking as a biologist, we are a curmudgeonly folk. Uh, we're very set in our ways and we don't like for scientists i think we don't like change very much we like doing things we like our excel sheets we like our uh, spreadsheets and and stuff and to do like to, to change even adopting eln's i know some scientists are like no i like my paper lab book you can edit an eln well no there's a digital record but it's not the same you know Right. Uh, yeah. getting, getting people to change and that storytelling, I think, is the way to do it, to give yeah. them that and, vision. Yeah. And from from the software engineering perspective, 
I think we're not always good at kind of we, we're good at communicating with other you know technical folks other software engineers but not always good at sort of understanding the best way to you know we, we can tell you the 10 reasons why a database is better than excel right but but that's not gonna that's not gonna change your mind whereas you know often you think it's a, a more deliberate story you know we'll, we'll at least go, go a lot longer in that direction mm -hmm. wonderful i think we are at a great place to finish up this episode Absolutely. I really, I really enjoyed that, Jesse. Um, I, I, I read your, your blog and now talking about it and you giving all those examples, it makes, it makes such a nice story. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, I think there's, there's some really important points that we discussed. And I think the listeners will, uh, will definitely take that up on and I definitely encourage people to, uh, to read Jesse's blog, um, Scaling Biotech. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This has been a lot of fun. Um, and I, I yeah, I, I, this, this is a great conversation. And that brings to a close another episode of Cab Talk. You can read Jesse's podcast at scalingbiotech.com and you can find him in the LinkedIn group. Just check out uh, Computer Aided Biology Community and search the LinkedIn groups and you can bombard Jesse with all the questions you want. <laughs> um, and you can always keep up with the Computer Aided Biology Community at our newsletter and website, computeradedbiology.com. See you next time.